We're nearing the end of our sermon series in the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we're in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you want to turn there. Uh, something big has happened. The walls have been built. We skipped from 5 to 8, and I, I suppose that's a fairly anticlimactic way for me to put it, given that the whole book sort of builds to the moment that the walls are finally reconstructed. Nevertheless, they're done, and then immediately afterward, in uh, 7... We're actually in 770, uh, 74, 73, this happens. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the peoples assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the Torah, the law, before the assembly, which was made of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood uh, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. Uh, And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, Yahweh, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalaita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, instructed the people in the Torah while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the, the, priest and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this, is the, this day is sacred to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the Torah, They found written in the Torah, which Yahweh had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns in in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booths, you know, lean-tos, little tents as as it was written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them 
from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with, re- with regulation, there was an assembly. Let's pray. You, Lord Jesus, you alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. Share them with us this morning. Uh, Water to quench our thirsty souls. Amen. I admit, I am a sucker for the optical illusion pictures where you look at it one way and it looks like a duck and you look at it another way, it looks like a rabbit. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, Or you... um, Oh, there's the one with the old woman. She has a, a, a nose that is kind of humped like my own and a shawl over her head. But if you look at it another way, you see it's the profile of a young lady who's looking away from you and she has a, a feather you know, sticking out of the top of her hair. Well, this week, a Jewish rabbi posted on Twitter what was for me a mind-blowing optical illusion Look at the back of your bulletin. I I know you had to be wondering, (laughs) what is the Chicago Bulls doing on the back of your bulletin? Well, if you think it's the Chicago Bulls, made famous by Michael Jordan, but if you flip it upside down, oh, it looks like Ezra reading the Torah, doesn't it? Or or an alien Ezra reading the Torah. You're very welcome. You'll never be able to see that logo the same way again. I couldn't resist, just given... It do, I will loop it back into the sermon, I, I promise. So Ezra reappears, uh, really appears for the first time in the book of Nehemiah. The walls had been built just a few, few days previously, and, and Nehemiah had made preparations for this grand festival, which included building a large you know, platform for the purpose of reading and preaching the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what's clear, clear from reading the passage is these people were starving, absolutely starving for the word of God. I mean, they lived at a time when... There was no such thing as a personal copy of the Bible, um, let alone the dozens of personal copies we have on our own bookshelves. And somehow the reading of the Torah had been neglected. Uh, That was part of the reason they went into exile. Nobody paid attention to the Torah. It's part of the reason uh, they are in such bad straits right now. They're they're no longer paying attention to the Torah. Everyone, once they hear it read, they're weeping. They're devastated. They're crying their eyes out. Why? Well, because in hearing the Torah, they're confronted with the fact that the life that they are now living is is such a cataclysmically vast difference to the life that they ought to be living. And they're struck with that. They're, they're, They're crying, oh God, you know, our lives have wandered so far from you and from your word which is a state uh, that probably all of us have have experienced more than one time uh, in life. Look again at verses 9 through 11, if you will. Nehemiah's surprising response. Nehemiah forbids their sorrow. We read 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. The fact that it was a holy day made their sorrow inappropriate. And this was a day that God had set aside for joy for feasting, uh, a moment for Israel to remember her salvation from Egypt and consequently her deliverance from Babylon, a day to celebrate the, the construction of the walls of the city once again. I mean, just as it says in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to um, weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. And this was a time, this was a time to feast and rejoice. How, how does someone with a broken heart go about, you know, not being sad anymore? It's not always obvious to us that a person who is sad can be ordered to be happy, and, you know, Bobby McFerrin notwithstanding. Um, but here's Nehemiah's method. Uh, we just read it. It's go home and have a fine meal with fine drink and be sure that everyone else shares a fine meal so that no one is sort of left out of the happiness. Go home, eat beef tenderloin, drink great wine, share the joy with those who can't afford it. It's like he's suggesting that these are the practical steps one takes towards deliberate joy. And the Bible recognizes uh, that our bodies exercise a great deal of influence on our souls for good or ill. And when you look through church history, you find that there has always been a certain type of Christian spirituality which resists this idea, that resists the physical aids to spiritual joy. As one author puts it, this is the same kind of idea that protests against food and drink as an aid to joy, or that protests against church buildings as an aid to worship, or beautiful music or beautiful art for the same purposes. But, you know, it's far easier to be happy in the Lord when your body is pitching in than when your body is you know, sabotaging, sabotaging rather that effort. That's why the Nehemiah recommends good food and good drink and good conversations with friends and family and good generosity to spread it around to people who um, might not be able to participate. And to add into the mix some good camping, because they do, in fact, celebrate Feast of Booths, um, you know, good outdoor camping experience. The book of Revelation, if you think about it, describes to us heaven in terms of, of being a place of breathtaking physical beauty, a place where the most delicious things will be tasted and the most exquisite sounds will be heard. I mean, surely that is an indicator to us that, that our bodies have real influence over our soul's joy. And it's not, it's not simply enough for us to just pray for joy, to pray for joy and passively await joy to come upon us. No, it's, it's perfectly appropriate to teach your body to do that work on your soul's behalf. And that's the first thing I wanted to bring out from the passage. Not the main point, but an important point. And I'll loop, uh, loop it back in at the end of this sermon. The main point is the one that Joe you know, picked up on um, in leading the liturgy, the, the centrality of the word of God in our lives. You know, many of us don't bring physical Bibles to church anymore because when I mean, you think about younger Christians, 
they don't even use physical Bibles anymore. I mean, you, you just read it on your phone or you read it on your iPad. And I'm not here to debate the merits of that. Uh, have we done this exercise previously where, if, do you have your Bible? Take a look at it. What is printed on the cover in the leather? What does it say? It says, holy. That, that means utterly unique, special, sacred, like different than everything else. And it says Bible, and that's simply the Greek word biblos, which means book. Utterly unique, special, sacred, different than every other book. I mean, that's what the cover page, the, the covers of our Bibles actually mean. And, and what makes this book so special is that we believe these are the very words of God. In fact, the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit that this really is the very word of God, as the front of your bulletin in the Westminster Confession indicate. It, these are God's words. You know, Bart Ehrman is a f- famous Bible critic and, and agnostic professor of history and literature at, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He starts one of his courses, or, or so I've been told, by asking students a question, how many of you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? And he looks around the classroom, and, and if, quite a few number of hands go up, because, it's, you know, it's the South, and yeah, I believe that it's the inspired word of God. Then he asks the, the class, how many of you have read, and he'll select a popular novel, like uh, Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games. How many of you have read The Hunger Games? And nearly every hand in the room goes up. Third question, how many of you have read the entire Bible? And zero hands go up, and he says... Now I can understand why you want to read Suzanne Collins' book. It's entertaining. But if you really believe that God wrote a book, then wouldn't you want to read it cover to cover? It says that, you know, pointing out the, the inconsistency of their, of their previous admission. Like, what do you really see when you, when you see this book? What do you see? Uh, is it, do you see, do you see water? Like, I, I, a fountain of water flowing out of it to you? Do you see uh, like the most priceless treasure, your most priceless treasure in this world? Do you see tedium and boredom? And just one more thing I got to do and checking off my my list of things to do. I got to read it. What do you see? I mean, it's not a rhetorical question. It's something I I would truly ask you to ask yourself this week. What do I see when when I look at this thing? And remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your Torah. Do you see wonderful things there? You know, the daily reading of the word of God is, is critical, absolutely critical to our spiritual life. Um, critical. And I know you've heard it about a hundred times before from a pastor. You should hear it a thousand more. It is absolutely critical. Like every, every time I've seen somebody make a spiritual sh- shipwreck, uh, shipwreck of their lives, it's always because they ha- have long since discarded the daily reading and, me- and meditation of the Word of God from their lives. The daily reading of, of, of this book is critical. Um, and, and one of the ways, I, you say, well, I've read it, I've read it before, you know, all of us probably have taken a poetry class. Don't they teach you in a poetry class that the best reading of a poem is not the first reading of the poem? Of course it's not. 
The best reading of a poem, it's not even, it's not the fifth reading or the 10th or the 50th. It may be the hundredth reading of a poem. It is only in the hundredth, hundredth reading of a poem that all of the poem is ever present with you in every word and every line. It's like in the hundredth reading, we are able to remember forward as well as backward since the entire poem is with us at every moment. And this observation runs against the grain of our cultural conditioning, um, particularly our cultural conditioning of reading. We think spontaneity is natural and best. And so we expect the first exposure, the first reading will be the freshest and coolest. And repeated readings of any text often feels like this bit of drudgery. I've already read this and done this. Um, but but that's, not, that's not really true. I don't know if you've noticed this about your own reading. I've seen it in myself uh, that I tend to read half asleep that I'm not a very active reader, that I tend to read the same way that I watch TV, which is very passively. But it it is only when we read and we reread, actively looking with the Spirit's help for the wonderful things that are in the Torah, that the whole whole of Torah, the the whole of the the Bible, gets inside of us. And we find remembering forward and backward with us in every line. Peter Lightheart expands on this. He says, reading this book carefully will mean looking for connections across the canon, the Old Testament and the New Testament, connections that are always being, you know, made, and and how God, the ultimate author, reveals himself uh, repeatedly uh, through rhymes. You know, it's often been said that history rhymes. By that, you know, history has these repeating patterns. And the Bible rhymes. It rhymes throughout. Like when you see familiar patterns and various types that sweep across biblical history, uh, we are to ask what God means of those and ask him to communicate to us through them. What do you mean, Lord, when you're rhyming in this way? To read it carefully is simply to believe that everything belongs and everything is, is meaningful. I'd like to think something of that is happening in this passage. Ezra stands up on this grand occasion to read from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. Like, uh, I don't know how far he got, but he probably got through almost all of the Torah. He, he reads it aloud. And then the Levites kind of take the Torah and in a small group Bible study-ish setting, they explain the Torah to the people so that the people finally, clearly Understand, And you notice that that is a word that get, gets repeated in the passage. Five times the word understand occurs in the Hebrew. Uh, God is using skilled Levites to help the people understand. And again, I'm drawing here on Peter's, uh, what Peter had to say. He, he uses illustration about learning from other teachers of the Bible. He said, my youngest son is a, is a musical composer. And sometimes we'll be listening to a piece of music together and there's often a moment where he stops and he asks, hey dad, did you hear that? Like, did you hear that piano come in? Or, or did you hear that key change? Or did you notice that rhythmic complexity? And I stare back dumbly at him and say, nope, <laughs> I didn't hear any of it. What should I do? Should I conclude that my son, my son is delusional and he hears sounds that aren't there? What is, was happening is much simpler and much more humbling. His ears are better than mine. His, his ears are better than mine. Partly because of superior gifts, 
partly through sustained training. He hears what I can't hear in music. And that's applicable even to our reading of the Bible. You know, we Protestants don't like to admit this kind of inequality applies to Bible reading. We uh, hold as important theological truths that the, the perspicuity, a big word for the clarity of Scripture, that everything that, that is essential to be known in the Bible can be known by the learned and the unlearned. Um, we hold to the priesthood of all believers that you don't need a pastor or a priest to mediate the Word of God to you. Everybody can read and understand, but some people are, by the Spirit's gift and through long practice, better readers than others. Some readers notice things everyone, ever, everyone else overlooks. Good readers are making connections no one else would think to make. Some readers can make out the pattern and the tapestry while the rest of us are staring at a few threads. So it, it behooves us to pay attention and to have those, those other voices in our lives who, who read far better than we do. If you're like me, I grew up with a notion, kind of this notion of the Bible, that the Bible has information that will help me live the way that God wants me to live. And it's my job to you know, get that information and put it into practice. So the, the question that I am normally asking is, how does this apply to my life? Like, tell me, just cut to the chase. How does that apply to my life? And while that is, that is important, it's not the primary purpose of reading the Bible. I mean, Joe already alluded to it. it the chief aim of reading is, the reason we read the book is to see the, the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's to see the glory of Jesus on every page of Scripture. It is to see Jesus in all of his... He is the wondrous thing that the Torah, the psalmist was asking for. It is to see him from Genesis to Revelation. And there are some people who are more skillful at finding Jesus um, than we are. And it just, it's good for us to listen to them. The daily reading of the word of God is critical for your spiritual life. And Psalm 1 has this powerful metaphor. It's almost like a metaphorical promise of what happens to you and me. What happens to the man or woman when we daily meditate and read on the word of God. It says that such a man or woman, famous words, are like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, for the, the wicked are like the chaff that the wind blows away. The, the metaphor the psalmist uses is that they are like a tree whose roots go down deep into the water. And even when drought comes, even when dry seasons are upon us, they stay green and leafy because their re roots go deep. The leaf does not wither. When the dry wind blows through in the drought, they are not blown by the whims of their circumstances like the wicked, he says, are. They are stable in the wind. They are green in drought simply because their roots are always drinking from that water. There's a great spot in the Lord of the Rings where Pippin, the hobbit, is looking at Gandalf. And Gandalf, in his outward disposition, he looks very sad. And Pippin says this, that it, or the narrator says this, in Gandalf's face, Pippin saw at first only the lines of care and sorrow. But as he looked, he perceived that under all there, 
under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. (laughs) Such a great line. Yes, the world is sad. The world is crushingly sad. And you may see it on the the face of the man or the the woman who, who... you know, has their roots down deep into the Torah. But, but because, because they are drinking from the water, this fountain of joy is still there that could set forth the kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. And that joy is the joy that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It is. It's the joy we are to experience every day in his word, every Sunday, hopefully, when I try to preach it and, and proclaim it to the best of my ability. Um, that is our joy, that, that it, it can be always with us. I'll conclude with a story, an example of a man who I think put it all together really well. John Stott, the pastor of All Souls in London, pastored All Souls for like 60 years. Um, one of the, truly one of the greatest pastors of the 21st century. By giving you an example of Stott, I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, and you should just go out and live exactly like John Stott. That's the solution. But I, I don't know. I like to read the biographies of brothers and sisters whom I admire and I want to emulate. Stott's one of those guys. He's speaking here primarily to pastors, but it's applicable, I think, to all of us. He begins by saying, fundamental to all Christian leadership and ministry is simply a humble, personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ with devotion to him expressed in daily prayer, uh, the word and love for him expressed in daily obedience. Stott was a very disciplined man. He, He followed these rhythms of life that he decided were the best rhythms for his own life. He didn't impose those disciplines on others in a legalistic way, but they were the framework by which he, you know, tried to walk with Jesus. And they would begin, he would normally, you know, wake up every morning at five. And he would greet, when he woke up, he would greet each member of the Trinity. <laughs> and he would, uh, you know, offer some petition for the day ahead. And then it was his custom to recite the fruits of the Spirit, you know. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And he would re- recite the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Or he would meditate on Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to, uh, you know, to uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Then he would listen to the radio while he was washing, and then he would spend an hour reading the Bible. All his adult life, he followed the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, where he would read four chapters each day, three each morning, one of which he studied in more depth, and then one at night. His Bible reading was followed by intercessory prayer. He had a leather notebook containing names and issues for your prayer requests, uh, letters that were stuffed in it that from people, um, uh, you know, communications that people had sent to him. Uh, he would say prayer is a battle. He knows that. He imagined God waiting within a walled garden, but in front of the door of the garden stood the devil with a drawn sword who must be defeated in the name of Christ. He said, many of us give up praying before we have tried to fight this battle. And the best way to win, in my experience, is to claim the promises of Scripture, which the devil cannot undo. During Lent, he would give up his, one of the abiding passions of his life, chocolate. <laughs> uh, his friend John Wyatt recalls how uh, Stott once told him that he was, 
He was in the habit of, um, when walking alone, when he was walking outside, of remembering that every fresh breath, every heartbeat was a gift from God which could, could be taken away at any time. And he'd consciously remind himself of that. He was once asked whether he had felt like he wanted to give up the ministry, to quit the ministry. He acknowledged that pastors are often subject to discouragements, and these can easily lead to burnout. But he added, I've never really been tempted to this because I have taken precautions. Now, I have recognized that human beings are psychosomatic creatures, so that our bodily connection has a powerful influence on our spiritual life. And so I've tried to maintain a disciplined life ensuring adequate sleep, food, and exercise. Uh, One of his uh, characteristic favorite pastimes was bird watching. He said, I don't think bird watchers ever have nervous breakdowns. (laughs) A little tongue-in-cheek. But just the the physical recreation and the mental relaxation of bird watching. And finally, he concludes, I found, however, that the most important of all is simply a disciplined devotional life with a determination to meet Jesus Christ every day. You can hear then, in my description of Stott, how he kind of combines hopefully the best of what I was talking about in the sermon. Um, This idea that our, our bodies ought to be trained and used in such a way to promote our spiritual joy, and and ultimately that... When this man looked at this book, he saw the words on the front of it, and he really believed that that's what it was. And if you, if you do, if you see, if what you see is this is the utterly unique, uh, sacred, very words of God to us that contain uh, the words of Jesus, that contain Jesus, if you believe that, then there's no reason why you'll want to spend a day without it, is there? There's not. Amen. (laughs) Amen.